Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royful Brown, who is trying to be a good son in Birmingham in England. Uh, today, we are joined by TV pundit Laura Babcock in Hamilton, who's in her office, don't you know? Journalist Emma Burnell in London and by Doug Levy, the man who knows what to do with the cauliflower in uh, just north of San Francisco in America. Say hello, folks. Hello Hi. there. In a week that has seen the noonday sky in the Bay Area turn a dark orange colour that is almost looks like it's heralding the end of times, we ask why are Canadians giving money to black businesses? The pandemic has disproportionately affected black Canadians. It's highlighted inequalities that have existed and persisted for generations, including for black Canadians who want to start their own businesses. A statement from the Parliamentary Black Caucus makes this point. It says, it is hard to change what one cannot measure. For too long, the socioeconomic realities faced by black communities are invisible because of a comprehensive lack of data. Today, the Prime Minister announced a multi-million dollar program to collect that data and to help break down barriers systemic racism has created. Little Jamaica, a largely black business community in Toronto, has been hit hard by major subway construction and by the downturn from COVID-19. But all of that comes on top of decades of systemic racism towards black businesses in this country. The cost of running a business as a local business or as a black entrepreneur is higher. The Benny Boo fashion shop has faced barriers like higher insurance premiums that make it hard for black businesses like this to get loans from major banks. We had a disadvantage being uh, a black entrepreneur. Financial benefits are not readily and easily available to us given certain systematic um, discriminations. Earlier this summer, the Prime Minister promised to address injustices faced by people of colour. Justin Trudeau has announced a new loan program for black entrepreneurs. Uh, this comes at a time when Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the New Democratic Party, has called for action against systematic racism. Laura, Prime Minister, has announced his multi-million dollar program to help black Canadians get business loans and national banks are behind this. Why did the death of George Floyd have such profound effect on Canadian politics? Well, I think it's that, of course. Uh, we're so close to the border, uh, many of your listeners may not realize, but most of our population lives within about an hour or so of the United States. So we are very, very much connected to all things American. But I think it's beyond that. We saw that Black communities were disproportionately affected in Canada by COVID, uh, as we've seen elsewhere, both in terms of their health and the economic impacts. And it was actually in June, the Congressional Black group at in our parliament who really pushed for this, uh, and the NDP, as you mentioned, and Jagmeet Singh. And mm -hmm. what this is, is it's more than just a loan program. There is a portion of it uh, close to, uh, you know, I think 91 million coming from the government per se, but also the banks have allotted a certain amount of loans they're going to provide. But I think what makes this possibly uh, a best practice, maybe that other countries may want to look at, is it's also got um, 
sort of an entrepreneurial hub, a place where investment and, and opportunities for the black community, the black business community can be looked at and discussed. It's also looking at some of the reasons why the black community needs this extra support. Where's the systemic racism? Where are the gaps that need to be addressed? So it's more than just money. It's a broader conversation around how to uh, make things obviously more just in the conversation, even in introducing it yesterday, some of the language that Trudeau used was around the fact that by making, uh, by, by having them more economically engaged in the sense of being real players in the economy, I'm paraphrasing, but that actually leads to justice, right? That there is a support for that community, more justice will come. So when you bring it back to George Floyd and the calls for justice and defunding the police and all of those messages have resonated here in Canada. But I think what this does is it says, here's some practical ways that we can actually try to help the situation. We're not having the conversation, at least not our, our government at this moment, about whether systematic racism exists in Canada. We're actually doing something about it. There are some opponents to this who are suggesting that by you know singling out one race and supporting them, that is racism. Laura, Laura, one of the one of the reasons why I love having you on these shows because you always not only answer my question but answer my next three. <laughs> but uh, let's just pretend like you haven't quite got onto that uh, last bit of what you said. So specifically, um, let's look at somebody like uh, Leslie Lewis who ran to be uh, the leader of the Conservative Party. Um, when it came to systematic uh, racism in Canada, what did she have to say about that? What was, what was her take on it? Uh, well, I, I, you'll forgive me, I didn't follow her particular platform that closely. She wasn't really a contender. Uh, but I can tell you that one of the things that um, we're seeing with the one who did win Aaron O'Toole, who did win the conservative leadership, he was one of the two that we discussed had the potential for it. Uh, he has, there, there's also in this mix, right? There's also the fact that a statue was torn down in Montreal and the head of uh, our, our founding prime minister was kind of rolled off, some calling it a decapitation. And he has come out and said very clearly that we aren't to be taking down these statues because we, you know, it, it takes away from our history. So there is a tension going on even with the conservative party still, but we've seen O'Toole in the last couple of days trying to pivot to a Canada first strategy, trying to bring in the working class, getting to a really populist narrative. Um, so, you know, the whole, I don't want to give the impression that all of Canada, Roy Shield, is 100% on board with understanding systematic racism and that everybody is on the same page. But our government, to your initial question, has taken a specific action to try to ameliorate at least some of the injustice. Mm -hmm. And then the other place you were going with your answer, completely telegraphing uh, my whole thought process was why black people? What about um, the First Nations? What about other marginalized groups? Will they be getting similar funds? Were they mentioned? What does a black business even really mean? Well, that's a great question. And I think one of the things that we have seen that has been heartening is during even the uh, defund the police protests, the Black Lives Matter protests here in Canada, there's always talk about our First Nations, our Indigenous people as being part of that. So it, it's kind of being tied into the, the need for justice for our diverse communities. And uh, so in terms of supports for our Indigenous peoples, I mean, one of the things that Trudeau got elected on initially was resetting all of that and and hugely supporting that community. And, and I don't think that he has risen to the level of his initial promises. There's far more work to be done on that front. Uh, so I would hope that these same kind of initiatives, these same kind of ways of, a dis, of identifying the gaps in our system, the systematic racism that absolutely, absolutely exists with our Indigenous peoples. I mean, it was the United Nations that called out Canada years ago for that, right? We, we might pretend that we've got it all together, but we really don't. And we have to treat our First Nations better and our Black communities. What I don't want to do is say, you know, if this group gets this, you know, uh, you know I, I, I think this is a good step. It's not a panacea. It's a good step to help our Black community. What can we do with our Indigenous community? What can we do with any community that doesn't experience justice in our country? I mean, that's what the discussion is about. That's kind of an amazing difference with the United States, because here, some of the people who are opposing the Black Lives Matter reforms are indeed some of the people from those other marginalized uh, groups. In many cases, the BLM folks are very inclusive, and that's why there's been such a groundswell recently. However, when it comes to actual reforms going through legislatures, you've got groups pitted against groups, and it's, I wish we were as sophisticated as our neighbors to the north. 
Well, we're working on it because I think we understand, and, and I'm here speaking as a white woman who's got a ton to learn about all this, so I'm hardly an authority on what those groups experience, but I am trying to listen and support where I can. And one of the things that seems so obvious to a communications expert like myself watching from a bit of a distance is that when different groups that are fighting for justice can't work together, they're far easier to ignore, you know, and so this sense of collective power and the sense of collective justice for all, I think is got to be the way to go. Uh, I don't know that there's a country where that isn't the way to go. You know, how we treat everyone in our society is who we are as a society. That's absolutely the right way to solve things. However, there's a vested interest among certain people to not solve the problems. And I'm not going to pretend for one second, Doug, that those elements might not exist in Canada as well. Uh, you know, whenever you've got people, people are going to oftentimes prioritize their own needs. What I have seen, though, is uh, a lot of conversation around being inclusive and trying to and just trying to get rid of systemic racism regardless. Justice. It's about justice, right? Uh, I don't have any of the limits that other people experience. I don't have any of the same uh, engagements with police that other people in our, in our communities experience. I simply don't have to go through those challenges. And so how, how is that fair? There was a meme going around on Twitter um, this week, which is 12 things that show how kind of rebellious you are. What's your score? It was quite US-centric because one of them was like fired a gun. My score, I think, was four, which is pretty, um, pretty, means I was fair. I got a three. I got a three. <laughs> um, I was talking with someone else about it and I said, and I said, well, I've never skydived. I've never been on a cruise. Um, I've never done something else. And despite having done all the other things, I'm white and middle class, so I've never been arrested. That's right. Uh, one of them was a hand gliding, I think, and some other weird stuff in there. Well, no but, tattoos. That's what I haven't got. I haven't got a tap. <laughs> but, but all I can say on this, Emma and, and Doug and Royfield, is that I don't know what I don't know because my experience has singularly been that of a, of a white person, you know, who was born in a middle class family with an upper middle class income. And even though I started my own company and the rest of it, what barriers didn't I face throughout my education and even as an entrepreneur that black communities in this case, we're talking about this black, these black entrepreneurs, what barriers do they face that I wouldn't even be aware of? So, you know, helping that group of individuals succeed and make the country more just is a great start. Let's try to do it with everybody. So we're all, we're all coming at this, this difficult life with the same level of opportunity. Yeah. Uh, Laura. Justin Trudeau said that he recognised there's much more to do with balancing racial inequalities, specifically to do with the justice system, public safety and working with the police. Now, carding the policy of the police stopping Canadians and asking for their IDs came in for some heavy criticism just some three years ago, and there was some a judicial review. Jagmeet Singh, again, the leader of the NDP, has said that carding needs to end. Why hasn't it ended? In some communities, it has. Uh, in some communities, I would argue it has kind of partially. Uh, in other communities where it has ended because of loud vocal advocates to end the practice, in Toronto being one of them, there's been a spate of shootings lately and, you know, and some calls we're seeing in media again saying we should go back to carding. So why it hasn't ended is because I think that People still hold on to some, some irrational fears and some judgments and, and some racism. And they think that, you know, preventative policing, I mean, that's something else that came up in, in Canada in the last week and kind of uh, didn't get a lot of airtime, but the idea of using AI to have algorithms to sort of predict crime, you know, right out of the movie by Tom Cruise years ago. And, mm -hmm. and, is it, and it's already being used in some ways, collecting crime stats, but it could be used much more robustly. And what does that mean for human rights? And so, so when you ask why hasn't carding stopped, I think it's the same reason uh, people, people have irrational fears. They have these ideas of preventative crime. I, I don't think those are just ideas. And, and as a society, we have to keep fighting to look at what is really going to prevent crime, what kind of social supports, what kind of uh, economic supports, you know, what causes people to be in that position. And I think we really have to have a better understanding of that. Carding seemed maybe like a, a quick tactical solution, but it hasn't proven out in the numbers. It's, it's disproportionately unfair. We know that. Uh, and so I think, you know, as Canadians, we have to still try to push to stop that practice. Um. Support for black-run businesses was one of the requests in a letter drafted by the Parliamentary Black Caucus. Um, who exactly are they? 
you know what? I don't have their names to roll off to you like that, Royfield. <laughs> the impact of their efforts is who they are, right? Uh, they are advocating for, for supports for the black community, for black entrepreneurs successfully. Uh, and Jagmeet Singh, that you pointed out a few times as a racialized leader of a major party in this country, has pushed for a lot of what we might look at as more of Trudeau's progressive uh, stances in the last couple of years, which is the role of an effective opposition. Uh, and we'll see whether we have a throne speech coming up. There's a lot of things that you, uh, you've identified that the country is looking at. Uh, and we'll see whether or not the new conservative leadership can help to um, cause a confidence vote and, and a snap election. We're looking at that in just an, a couple of weeks here. So, um, you know, Trudeau coming out with this whole thing is well-timed. They have a throne speech. They have a new finance minister. They have to get over some recent scandals. There's a lot going on here in Canada. But I think to the broader point is if we can in any way at least model a better discussion around these issues of race and what justice looks like and equality looks like. I mean, I think that is the argument that the Trudeau government has to make in the throne speech, that we're on the right track. Just before we end and, and leave Canada, Emma, uh, the Parliamentary Black Caucus in the UK, what would you say their notable achievements have been? I don't think we have an official Parliamentary Black Caucus. The groupings don't really work that way you'll you there may be an all-party parliamentary group um on black and minority ethnic issues um mm. i haven't looked it up for a while but that would be the equivalent i suppose which would be a cross-party grouping um that comes together around an issue or um something uh, so there are all-party parliamentary groups around issues there are some on different countries um and they then try to meet across parties to formulate ideas and push for particular um, approaches. Well, you know, I'm glad you said that because I wasn't aware that we had one and I had to do a quick uh, kind of Google. We definitely have a, a BAME one, but there are so many or parts of parliamentary groups, there'll mm. be something on those lines, definitely. Yeah. Um, according to a quick Wikipedia, Bernie Grant, established it in, in 1989 and uh, that was news to me. Well, you know, it, Bernie Grant in would have been almost the only member. Bernie and Sam <laughs> would have literally been... Yeah, and Paul Botang, yeah. Uh, I apologise that I didn't know the specifics on the Black Caucus. They're a mix of MPs and senators, 14 uh, in Canada, who were the ones who effectively lobbied the Trudeau government in June of this year around getting these supports in for Black entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And then we should end with you here, Doug, just talking about black politicians of either stripe banding together. Could you just uh, tell us about uh, the, the Black Caucus over in the United States? Uh, who are the, the loudest members, the most vociferous, et cetera, et cetera? You know, there's a leadership change because um, of the, uh, the recent death of uh, Congressman John Lewis, who mm-hmm. was just an amazing, amazing man, um, lived a long life of amazing public service and and just true true hero to anybody who values what america stands for there's a pretty deep bench of people like maxine waters of los angeles who has uh, been uh, one of the loudest voices on uh, finance and banking issues particularly uh, fighting against discrimination against uh, african americans and others getting mortgage loans and so on one of the rising stars is Val Demings of Florida, who is a former police chief uh, from Orlando, who was uh, one of the designated prosecutors during the impeachment trial of uh, President Trump. And Demings is uh, just a terrific, increasingly visible voice. I think we're going to see more different leaders speaking up and speaking out. Now, the Congressional Black Black Caucus has been a force in Congress for years. I mean, you know, for a while, it was just sort of like the courtesy call necessity. But, you know, there's now enough members that you're not going to get major legislation passed without their support. Mm -hmm. So that's as it should be. You know, there are many minority members living in the United States who deserve representation and that representation should work together for the greater good. They are. And on that note, let's move to the United States and let's talk about your exalted, wonderful president. 
United States President Donald Trump is once again under fire for his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, a book by journalist Bob Woodward has claimed that Trump intentionally downplayed the threat of the deadly disease. In his book called Rage, renowned journalist Bob Woodward said that the US president acknowledged the severity of the coronavirus pandemic even before cases began to rise in America. Woodward also released the audio of Trump's interviews which took place in the months of February and March before the massive spike of cases in America. The comments are in stark contrast to what Trump said in public. The US president, among other things, had said that the virus will go away on its own. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. It goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air. That's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. The book, which will release ahead of the November 3rd presidential elections, has kicked off a political storm. Remember, the United States of America has the highest COVID-19 death toll in the world. We've had former National Security Advisor John Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened, Mary Trump's book, um, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. The Atlantic has weighed in with the article, Trump. Americans who died in war are losers and suckers. Michael Schmidt's devastating tome, Donald Trump versus the United States, inside the struggle to stop a president. Even Michael Cohen, Trump's ex-fixer, he's got a book out, it's called Disloyal. And now we have the American journalist, to Trump or journalist pun, completely intended. Mr. Woodward has come out with a book, Rage. What do they say about America that a man with so many books detailing how unfit he is for office still commands at least 42% of approval of the American people. What does it say about you people there, Doug? You're skipping some of the other books, for example. Oh, Liberal Doug, we, 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 listen, this show is only an hour long, right? I had to prune it down and just go with the, the books of, uh, of 2020 and the books of the last, what, three, four months. But you're skipping, you know, Donald Trump Jr.'s books, Triggered and Liberal Privilege, um, among others. There, there's, there's, there are books coming from the other side of the aisle that if you're a true believer, you'll find what you're looking for. And that's, that's something that should not be ignored. As for all the which books... Then, that which then goes to my next point then, Doug. So let, let's just keep the ball rolling on this. So President Donald Trump and his allies have warned about their adversaries in the deep state. So is he the perfect politician for this conspiratorial internet age? Is he a kind of a template for the future? Someone with fierce supporters and detractors who's kind of impervious, impervious, sorry, to political criticism and to negative media because they can spin everything and produce their own counter books. Well, he's the master of projection. So knowing what's coming from these books that are very revealing with a lot of details that we've all kind of suspected, but we didn't have the details of. Um, for the past few months, Trump has been inoculating himself by saying, you know, the deep state's out to get me um, and actually laying out all the things that he says the Democrats have done, are doing, or will do when in fact all those things are the things that he's actually been doing and now his 40 percent remains unshakable because they've been expecting this and they just let it roll over i do think that uh trevor noah on the daily show got it absolutely spot on in his analysis yesterday um the the tapes and the details from Bob Woodward's forthcoming book are stunning because Woodward has Trump actually on tape talking about things like how dangerous coronavirus is from February 7th and other times when he was publicly discounting it. And what Noah said in his commentary last night was 
two things. We now know that Trump is actually smarter than we thought. He actually knew the details about coronavirus. And that's actually pretty surprising because I think a lot of us thought he was just too stupid to figure out or to understand the science. No, he apparently actually really did understand it. And then without missing a beat, could go out in the public and say something completely opposite. So he was consciously misleading, which is a whole new direction of things. It's not that he's just incompetent. It's that he's actually evil. And I'm not sure how this is going to play out, really. Could we not argue, before we go down this rabbit hole too much, but I suppose it's my role to try and be dispassionate and to try and view things from the other side as much as I don't necessarily believe it three quarters of the time. But uh, could we not say that he's being paternalistic? He knew this was going to be terrible. He just didn't want to spook the American people, the money markets, etc., by saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, our, our hair is on fire. But then quietly putting in the ban for travel from China, etc., etc. No, because the travel ban that he put from China was not what the scientific experts were recommending. Had he actually been listening to the scientific experts, he would have put in a travel surveillance program similar to what we had that kept Ebola from coming to the United States and that kept us on top of H1N1 and MERS and SARS and so on. What he did was something that was pure, pure politics, pure show. It, you know, he banned Chinese citizens from coming to the United States. Thousands of other people came anyway and there was no screening, which is how we know that a lot of cases came across up and down the West Coast. And he was ignoring all the signals that there was virus in Europe. So no, he was not doing the right thing anyway. We've got plenty of examples in history where leaders have had to convey difficult, challenging news to tell people that, hey, you got to suck up and, and do something that you might not like for a little while, but we'll get through this. Leaders do that. It's possible that Trump simply doesn't know how to do that. And that's probably true. He's not a leader. And faced with the opportunity, the necessity to be a real leader, he, I don't know the right word. He, he choked. didn't, he, he choked. Yes, that's right. He choked. That's his, his term that he used. Thank you. He did the opposite of what he should have done. He could have ignored the virus. He could have ignored the scientists. He could have done all kinds of things. But instead, he actually did things that were against public health, against public benefit, against That's the exactly. benefit of the people he's responsible for. There are oftentimes when a government needs to keep information from the public in order to prevent mass panic. But what you do while you're keeping that information is slowly build the infrastructure to deal with the thing that people might panic about. What he did was keep it quiet because it was politically inconvenient and do nothing, none of the hard work. And in fact, his people were in some instances specifically interrupting the existing infrastructure. Yeah. So we were less well positioned for this in February and March 2020 than we were even in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. You can either go, well, you know, I didn't want people to panic, which is the line that he's used. But you can't take that line if you haven't also done that infrastructural work. You know, it only works that way round. It doesn't work as an excuse for what he was up to. And the problem with that line, too, is that he's been running a panic campaign since the beginning with caravans of criminals coming up from Mexico and suburbs, you know, being destroyed. So panic is not something he's adverse to trying to generate. I think if, if I were to look at this as honestly as I can, I mean, I thought, too, that he was just an indulgent narcissist and didn't really follow or listen to the science and didn't really care. But what it really looks like now after hearing him clearly and carefully articulate the, the, how it was spread and, and the danger and the danger to young people, uh, you heard him trying to sound intelligent to Woodward. And what he really did was he revealed that maybe the only considerations were keeping the stock market up for his reelection. Uh, and if that's the case, as Bernstein, Woodward's partner, said, uh, long-time partner with Watergate, he said, you know, it could be the greatest presidential felony of all time that we found out about in the last 12, 14 hours. It's, it's devastating. It might not affect the election one way or another, but I think it impacts the history of America. 
Absolutely, I, and 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 one hundred and ninety thousand and counting lives later. All right. However, I'm going to guess that this revelation is only really going to be heard by the likes of us uh, left-leaning, liberal, latte-drinking types, and that Trump's polls will not move significantly with this revelation. Let's take that as a premise. I think I'm on pretty solid ground. Does this amount of damage in books and articles show how weak modern media is? Because Trump is impervious to enlarge. The exact opposite. I think the strength of modern media to have an impact on people is what this shows. Because what's happening is people are choosing their own media and absolutely believing in it. So I think what this shows is the strength of each type of media. It's just that we are completely able to stream what we want in terms of those media. I think that the the, um, convincing job that Fox News, um, the one that's even worse than Fox News, whose name I can't remember, but something like that. One one America knows. One American American News. That's it, One American (sighs) News, that's it, OAN, have done on that 40% of the country shows the strength of their convincing uh, and their ability to convince. Does it show the weakness of our media ecosystem as a whole? Yes, probably. The fact that we're in a hyper-partisan moment and that there is no agreed space where we, that we all get neutral facts from, that's a weakness, but it doesn't show a, a weakness of media at all. And that, and that one second there, Doug, and that actually was uh, the point that I was trying to make. And uh, I think you'll be aware more than anybody, Emma, that I'm a real advocate for the commons, the public space where we all kind of come together, regardless of political stripes, and we objectively listen to to the facts. And 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 the the commons has been diminished, uh, not because of Donald Trump per se, but because of uh, new digital media. Uh, sorry, Doug, I cut in. You're about to say. What's exciting is that people are reading books. There's more interest in reading books than I was actually but just. Doug, it's only us liberal latte drinking effect no, types that are reading these stop books. It. I don't touch milk, so I'm <laughs> not alive. And in fairness, we're all all kind of stuck without a lot to do. So I think that might have something to do with the fact that I've read more books in the last six months. (laughs) I mean, all right, I'll admit, I live in a liberal latte drinking community. Mm. I mean, I know my Goat's milk? Is it goat's milk or is it oat milk you drink in there, Doug? Oat milk. Oat Oat milk. milk. I I let the goats (laughs) keep their milk, uh, as well as the cows. The local bookstore in my neighborhood, uh, even though they've been mostly closed, has actually been thriving. Uh, with a lot of online events, and I know a lot of sales. Uh, I don't know how it compares to normal yet, but my sense is that more people are buying books this year than in the past. More people are aware of books as a form of journalism Mm. than ever before. All right. And that's important. All right. Let's have a a quick change of track here. Prominent people have worked for Trump thinking he was elected by the American people. And by working with him, they'll be doing their patriotic duty. Uh, Jim Mattis uh, was an example of this. And he joined the Trump administration right at the beginning. Uh, Doug, were they wrong to try and work with him and to steer the ship of state? In hindsight, were they wrong? I'm not sure. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I have to say that I admire people like General Mattis, who uh, I think was trying to do service to his nation and I think did his best. I'm not sure if a general, even a retired general, could have done much more or much better under the circumstances. I know people who were given opportunities to work in the Trump administration, but knew enough about Mr. Trump already that they wanted no part of it. I think that for people who truly knew, that was probably the right thing. But I also think that public service is something commendable. I think when you have an opportunity to do good, it's worth trying. I I was in the running for a a position at the Food and Drug Administration um, under an administration that I didn't agree much with. Uh, I wound up not getting the position for all kinds of reasons that mostly had nothing to do with me. But I would have been fine with it because I would have been using my expertise in an area where 
they genuinely wanted somebody like me. Yeah, I know loads of civil servants who find this government appalling, but they haven't left their jobs. They still serve. That there's a great deal of difference between political characters and public servants. And I well, except one big problem that we have is that the Trump administration has not made that distinction and, right. in fact, has manipulated the bureaucracy so that they've basically been able to push out those essentially nonpartisan professionals who keep the trains running every day and running well and come up with the actual information so that the political people can make policy choices based on facts. But this administration is kind of allergic to facts, it seems. And this is that we are following in your footsteps. We've had six of our most senior civil servants resign this year, which um, is because, precisely because this government is emulating Trump's approach. That's, I mean, that's a big risk, right? They're, they're running more like a regime. And, but because of that, now we're getting all these books uh, from all of these people who have left, who went in there to do their very best. I just want to bring up the quote that I think summarized it to me, because I've been critical of the generals. If they knew all this stuff, I, I'm glad Mattis was going over to the National Cathedral to pray about it, but I wish he had just gone over to 60 Minutes and told us about it, right? How many lives could have been saved in this entire morass? But one thing I, I did hear was that apparently, I, I think it might have been in, uh, I forget whose book, there's so many, but General Kelly, when he served as chief of staff, he said later that saying no to Donald Trump was like French kissing a chainsaw. <laughs> and I, I can't get that image out of my mind, you know? So what a horrendous job to have if telling your boss no on something felt anything like that image. <laughs> What's going to be the legacy of this type of presidency? What, what is going to be the legacy for America? What can we learn uh, from it, and what does it say about politicians and leaders going forward? Obviously, we're using Donald Trump as a model and a template here. So we're not talking about the future of Trumpism in the Republican Party per se. What will a politician potentially look like in, let's say, 2025, on the back of this most atypical of presidencies? Uh, why don't you answer it first, Doug, and then we'll go round and we'll do Canada and the UK afterwards. The answer truly depends on what happens November 3rd and in the weeks between November 3rd and the inauguration of whoever is on top. Uh, Michael Cohen openly says he doesn't think Trump will leave office uh, on his own accord, and that's a real fear. Um, and and you know, I, there are some people who think this is the end of American democracy, and that's possibly true. So it's a distinct possibility that Trump, in that intervening period, uh, we'll go, Mike Pence, um, why don't you uh, become president, but exonerate me of all future crimes so I'll get a pardon. That's one of the things that Michael Cohen says is possible. But the, the problem is that Trump, Trump is doing everything he can right now to undermine the election process. He's basically setting it up so that if he doesn't win, his 40% will think the election was stolen from him. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I hear that. And I'm so utterly fascinated by you Americans repeatedly going on about your peaceful transfer of power as if to say also Brits haven't been doing it for about 300 years and whatever. So let's just pass on that for now. Right. But with this atypical president who can marshal and garner so much support in and fly in the face of facts and people believe him doesn't matter whether you hear him say that americans who died for their country are suckers right people just don't care uh, what type of politician potentially is going to come out of that and are we looking at the new normal in terms of politicians being totally impervious to any level of criticism not really caring what the opposition says etc if Donald Trump is still president of the United States on January 21st, 2021, then that means that authoritarian populist autocrats can rise to power by being good marketers and deceptive. And We've already seen the, uh, the treatment of journalists around the world since the fake news narrative caught on so powerfully. And people might think Donald Trump is all kinds of things, but one thing he still has, and Amer they might think less of America, but still it is the bully pulpit of the world. And just the fact that that pernicious narrative gave permission for people to, to, to jail and to kill journalists, uh, there is a tremendous fear, and I think it's a realistic fear, it's not out of paranoia, that if Trump either stays or do doesn't transition or becomes a regime or whatever happens, he doesn't get fully 
cast out in November, uh, it will give all kinds of permissions to politicians around the world. And we've seen just here in Canada, uh, we've seen some of those narratives, right? Canada first is a, is a new thing that's just coming out from the new conservative leader. We've seen some populist rhetoric that was taking, we had in our national election last time, a party that was saying some things that were pretty scary for Canadians to hear, right? How that could even be on the stage, on the dais. And I've seen local politicians taking this Trump uh, response to criticism by attacking critics, by attacking the media, by not thinking there's, they need to be subject to any kind of, uh, any kind of scrutiny. There's no accountability. So, I mean, it might not all rise to the level of a regime that lies to the public about a health crisis. It couldn't be in these smaller, pernicious ways of, you know, we no longer have to listen to you. We're no longer accountable to you. Elections aren't real. The news is fake. So Trump has done a lot. He's not the cause of all of it, but he has been fantastic at promoting this crumbling of these systems that were pillars of our democracies uh, in small and large ways. So the whole world, I think, should be on tender hooks and for the next 53 days and up to January 20th to see whether or not uh, that is going to let out this floodgate of this kind of um, authoritarianism and populism in, in all these different shades. Yeah, I mean, watch Belarus and watch what Russia is doing because yeah, you know, Trump has, has absolutely given Putin permission to do a lot of bad things and get a pass. Of course, in Britain, us having the oldest surviving parliamentary democracy in the world. We're impervious to, to populism and to demagoguery. So, of course, it's only right and proper that you have the last word here and, and say that uh, Britain will always be a place where civil discourse in and out of politics will always be first, second and third in, in all of, 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 our, of, of our dealings in the future. And we will not be susceptible to populism. Well, before I talk about Britain, I think we need to be slightly less Western-centric than we have been. Mm. Um, this is not just happening in America. Um, it's not just problems that we've imported from America to Britain. Doug very rightly mentioned what's happening in Belarus. Uh, Lukashenko um, completely twisting his election. I think people could probably hear the air quotes there when I was talking. Um, but we've also got the strong man of Viktor Orban, uh, we've got um, Erdogan in Hungary. And look at China. China is com committing genocide on the Uyghur people and nobody is talking about it because they are so economically involved in everybody else's national lives. So I think this is a, an international problem that isn't just about President Trump. Uh, or just about Boris Johnson, because I could hear the sarcasm dripping off your voice <laughs> when you talking about how brilliant the British system is. Mm. You know, we are talking about a country that's government, this, a government minister stood up in our parliament and said, yeah, we're going to break the law. We are, we are not impervious to this populism. But the thing is, time is impervious to some of it. The, the, you know, the pendulum will swing back. So I think that we are slightly in danger of um, just thinking that it's so inevitable and so permanent that things will only get worse. Um, and that's, that's not how progress happens. Progress happens incrementally, it goes backwards, it's messy, but eventually we do make progress. We are even under these strong men in a better position than we would have been under the strong men of 100 years ago. And so we need to make sure that we continue to grasp the fight and the light. What a perfect way to end the segment. Um, the truth of, uh, what is it? The, the, the moral compass of history, yada, yada, bends, blah, 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 straight, something or another, said Barack Obama. Now, Boris Johnson's new bill to change the uh, UK's Brexit deal with the EU will break international law, according to one cabinet minister. The Northern Ireland Secretary, Brandon Lewis, uh, said the new legislation would go against the treaty in a specific and limited way. Former Prime Minister Theresa May has warned that the changes could damage trust in the UK over future trade deals. The latest round of trade negotiations between Britain and the EU started today. Our chief political correspondent, Vicky Young, was following them. Mr Johnson, are we going to get a deal today? Are you confident? He promised to get Brexit done and the UK has left the EU. 
But now Boris Johnson's team is in a familiar place, trying to negotiate another deal. This time it's about how we'll trade with the EU from January. Progress is slow, but round eight of the talks started today. I'm confident that our, our negotiating teams and the EU, nego EU negotiating teams are all focused on getting a good outcome, both for our friends and partners in the EU and for us in the United Kingdom. But there's another row brewing over the withdrawal agreement. Yes, the one which has already been signed, sealed and delivered. It agreed that Northern Ireland would continue to follow some EU customs rules. That would mean extra paperwork, checks and tariffs for some goods moving between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now the government's introducing its own law so that UK ministers can decide how to apply the rules without the EU's agreement. The disapproval from this former Prime Minister was obvious. The government is now changing the operation of that agreement. Given that, how can the government reassure future international partners that the UK can be trusted to abide by the legal obligations of the agreements it signs. Another Conservative MP got this remarkable admission from the Minister. Yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. That's not the kind of thing you hear very often in the House of Commons. The UK government has unveiled plans to give ministers sweeping powers to disapply. I didn't know that was even a word until this week. Part of the Brexit deal that Boris Johnson signed only in January. It's a move that has shocked the EU and could provoke a backlash by Conservative MPs. And has even caused Nancy Pelosi to warn there could be absolutely no chance of a US-UK trade deal if... Uh, the British government presses ahead with the move. Emma, what has happened and how have we got here? Well, as I just mentioned, this is illegal under international law. We would be, because you cannot uh, unilaterally rewrite a bilateral treaty. That's not how treaties work. So what we're doing is, is essentially breaking a treaty at the very moment that we are looking to go out into the world and create a whole bunch of new treaties. Now, I'm a poker player. I love a bit of you know, a good game of cards. That doesn't strike me as um, the best poker face to go out into the world with. Hey, we're going to break your treaties. Do you want one? Yeah, it, it just, it's, it's an astonishingly stupid uh, tactic. And again, I think it's tactic, not strategy. Uh, it's, it, you know, this government is very short-termist. You know, they, they wanted to change the story from uh, the disasters they've had of coronavirus. Uh, they wanted to throw their backbenchers a little red meat. And what always, always happens when they throw um, their backbenchers a little bit of red meat is that they ask for more. So it's not the case that the Conservative backbencher are in uproar over the fact that the government have threatened to break the law. They're saying that the government haven't gone far enough. And actually, they just want a no deal and they don't want anything else. And uh, Boris is being weak by trying to get any deal at all, even if it's a deal that he then reneges on. So, yeah, we are in, we're in a mess. We're in an undemocratic mess. And we're in a mess that's going to lead to us being unable to do the one thing that Brexiteers always claimed was the positive that would come out of Brexit, which is create new trade deals with other countries. Former Prime Minister John Major said, for generations, Britain's word has solemnly been given and taken as sacrosanct by friend and foe. Our signature on any treaty is our bond. Over the last century, our military strength has dwindled, and our, but our word has still retained its power. Isn't that just a certain amount of hyperbole? And we're just going to forget about this in a few months. We'll be able to do some deals with the Russians. And, and if there still is a Belarus later, a trade deal, that is. So isn't this a certain amount of hot air? And we'll all just forget about it soon. Yes and no. Of course it's a certain amount of hot air. Of course that um, flowery, florid language was um, very much sort of British exceptionalism, which is just bollocks. Sorry, nonsense, if you prefer but so yeah, the, the Britain's word is its bond, Royal Britannia nonsense is nonsense. But that's not to say that what we haven't signaled is our untrustworthiness in terms of uh, treaties. So I think uh, taking out the, um, you know, the, the jingoistic part of that, there is a grain of truth in that we are proving ourselves to be the kinds of people you can't sign a treaty with and trust as a, as a trusted partner. 
And then what does he say about um, Boris Johnson and his leadership? Because we are looking at many Tory backbenchers saying that they will not vote for this. And it was an MP for North Thanet, whose name I completely utterly forget, basically said, well, I'm not going to vote for this because it's like I can't vote for breaking the law. A man that came into power with so much parliamentary support, upending uh, British political norms in the north of England. He's taken down the red wall, painted it blue, so to speak. But uh, what, some nine months in, um, things are somewhat upside down for Boris Johnson. He doesn't really command the support of Tory grandees or the backbenchers per se. And then he's on about breaking international law. So I've kind of answered the question for you, but I'd rather like to hear an Emma Burnell spin on uh, the leadership qualities of one Boris Johnson. Uh, well, it would be a very quick answer. He has very few leadership qualities. What he has is a certain amount of charisma uh, and bombast uh, that carried, and that public school confidence that has carried him all this way. Boris Johnson always wanted to become prime minister. He never wanted to be prime minister. Now, I've stolen that line from an article by a guy called Jonathan Liss, but it is absolutely right. But I do credit Jonathan with the line, it's not mine. You know, he wanted to get to the top because Boris believes he should be at the top. What he doesn't want to do is the hard work of leading and running a country. Um, and sometimes that's okay if you employ the people who do want to do the hard work of leading and running a country. But what he's done instead is employ people like him, employ people in his own image, who instead of wanting to run a country, just want to do bombast and wrecking, and a Maoist approach to completely rewriting everything, when actually quite a lot of these systems work. A lot of them don't, and there is a lot to be done. I wouldn't necessarily put Dominic Cummings in charge of running a nursery, never mind running a country. But um, Boris Johnson is not a great leader. What he was and is, is a good campaigner, and the Tories elected him to win the election. Don't think the Tories aren't quite lethal enough to get rid of him once he's done that job. Chancellor Rishi to be the next leader of the Tory party? No, because he's too much in Boris's sights. Boris is absolutely, yeah, then nobody is being set up for a bigger form than Rishi Sunak. No, it'll be pretty Patel. Mark my words. Good grief. That's really put me off uh, my, my dinner, which I'm <laughs> Oh, on that note, uh, folks, let's go to takeaways of the last seven days. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's that time. And we dispense with politics and we just talk about nice stuff. Stuff that inspires us. Stuff that has lifted up the warm, the warm thermals underneath our wings. Uh, Emma Burnell, how about you? Why don't you go first? What has been your takeaway the last seven days? Um, well, uh, it, it, it's just been confirmed that we've lost um, Dame Diana Rigg, uh, who is one of Britain's most incredible um, acting talents. And only earlier this week, there was a, a question going around again on Twitter. I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, 
who's the most famous person you've seen on stage? And I answer that probably, I mean, I see, uh, yeah, as, as regular listeners will know, I do a lot of theatre when there is theatre to be done. Um, but I saw Diana Rigg in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf back in the 90s. Um, and it was an, it's an incredible play anyway. It's incredibly moving and scary an interesting play and it's a play and a film and um, there's a film with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton who of course were married twice and had the tempestuous relationship that is at the heart of the play. I saw that play um, with Diana Rigg when I was in my early 20s before I really understood those themes or had lived through them um, and she moved me so much then and as I think back now to the power of that performance um, and the power of the play, as an older woman who's been divorced, who's been through you know those those relationships, those those mutually abusive, not abusive, but you know not very nice to each other relationships. Um, I just I can't help but but be so in awe that she taught me that at twenty. So I just wanted to um, to raise up the work, huge, huge body of work of, of Dame Diana Rigg and, and say thank you for everything. Oh, wonderful and, and well said. Laura Babcock, coming over to you. You're next, you're up. One of the things that Canada has been obsessed with, rightly so, for the last week is back to school for our kids and whether or not it's safe to do. Our, uh, we might have flattened the curve mostly across the country, but the, in many cases, the preparation for the classrooms doesn't seem to be nearly as sufficient or even as, um, I mean, if you look at the way government's discussing it in the rooms they're sitting in with the distance they have and the masks and everything else, and then you look at photos of the, what the classrooms are going to look like. It's pretty terrifying. And a lot of parents aren't sending their kids to school just yet. We're waiting to see a second wave potentially in the flu in the fall. And there's a lot of things going on. Uh, so one of the things that if you, it's been a pretty grim week, a very stressful week for so many. And I think one of the things that has lifted my spirits might be that just like in the, the height of COVID when we were really fighting the infection rates, we had a new appreciation for our healthcare workers. And when we were looking for food, when all of us felt as though we had to stock up, we really appreciated the people who worked in our grocery stores and, and in our delivery businesses. Uh, and now, as we're all looking at all of the risks of returning to school and what that might mean for families and teachers and seniors, I think we've seen a new appreciation for the actual teachers in our schools. You know, looking at how they're trying to prepare, looking at their classrooms, looking at all of their normal curriculum considerations, uh, and now they have to put in all of this public health work on top of it. So if there's one good thing in what's been a pretty down week, uh, it is the fact that People are seeing teachers with a new appreciation, and I think that's wonderful because really uh, they are going to have so much of an impact on how our kids get through this and how this generation of children um, cope in the future. And, and so to all the teachers out there, you do hard work every day anyway, but uh, this is incredibly hard and many of you are risking your lives and the lives of your families. So thank you to them. Here, here. Here, here, indeed, uh, Doug. Uh, you come, uh, you come next, and of course, you live in a country which really values its public uh, school teachers, don't you? Oh, right. Yeah. Gosh, I, I actually, there are, uh, I believe, four teachers on my block, and I see what they go through. And yes, the ones in public schools get reasonably good benefits and vacations and stability over time but uh, what they're going through now I wouldn't wish on anybody and um, I do hope they're being appreciated more because they sure as heck deserve it um, my takeaway of the week though is on a different subject one of the uh, unintended unexpected consequences of COVID-19 has been um, curtailment of so much of our recycling and environmental protection uh, around the world, and especially in the United States, where disposables are always preferred over recyclables, which makes me nuts. Um, but I want to uh, do a shout out to a zoo in Germany that has come up with a very smart fundraiser um, that is also recycling. They are selling uh, tiger poop as fertilizer. And uh, they've apparently been very successful selling uh, as much as the animals can produce and <laughs> making money Tiger poop. <laughs> 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 what's up with my roses 
<laughs> Can't think of a better way to summarize this week, tiger poop. <laughs> um, as is ritual, as is custom, I, I will go last. And um, I'm going to have a big shout out for parents, but for the parents which can get a bad rap, this is step and foster parents. And my folks, some 20 plus years ago, started fostering. It's quite typical within the West Indian community within the UK uh, to do this. It's generally, it's West Indian parents who, uh, who are that Windrush generation who end up with big houses, empty nests, and there are a disproportionate amount of black and ethnic children within the care system within the UK. So they, they, they foster, and my folks were very typical in, in that regard. And the first child they took in was Thomas, who is a, a black boy who lived up in Middlesbrough. And uh, Middlesbrough is a quite a white town. And I forget the reason why Thomas ended up in Middlesbrough, but he was in Middlesbrough. And Thomas um, thrived by being fostered by my folks. Um, but he had a tricky, he had a tricky first nine, ten years of his life. Um, so much so and I hope you won't mind me saying this because I know he does listen to the show but he was that scared he was that scared that he was uh, he wouldn't come out of his room at one point he used to wee in the corner of his room so he had a tricky first nine ten years of his life yesterday we were all at dinner out at a restaurant in the centre of Birmingham with Thomas and his family and there was Thomas with his girlfriend laughing and joking and when I say they were laughing and joking like they were just had only met each other the week beforehand and they've been together for a couple of years right i'm underselling how effortlessly and how obviously in love with each other they actually are she has um, a daughter jazara jazara is 14 and what i saw was just so wonderful i met jazara for the first time at christmas last year and so jazara is not thomas's biological child but she was incredibly quiet and shy around her new family. She's a 13-year-old girl thrust into this family. She didn't know who, who we were. She'd heard about us all. And she said, you must be Royfield. You live in California. I said, yes. And then she just wouldn't say anything for the next two hours. Could I shut her up yesterday? I just thought to myself, as my mom is one of saying, people come into your life for a reason. Thomas came into our life because he needed a family. And then I just thought, what a fantastic job my parents have done specifically with Thomas, but also with Mohammed, my Afghani brother, and with Daniel, my brother from Eritrea. But let's deal, deal with Thomas right now. And what an amazing job so many people do throughout the world fostering children. And the proof of the pudding is when that child has their own family and you see the pattern kind of repeated, so Thomas was a foster child, but now he's a stepfather. And he told my mom, he said, Joyce, Jazara said that she loves me the other day. My mom was crying as she said that. So big ups to all foster parents and to step parents, because you do a wonderful job. That's my takeaway of the last seven days. Your mom sounds awesome, right? <laughs> That's so cool. I love it. It's on an adoption panel. Um, and hears these stories month in, month out at the panel. And it, you know, it just when we have dark times like this, those sort of stories just, just absolutely give you life, don't they? Yeah. You know, and, and it's it's such an old truism to say that, you know, the world is actually fueled by love, but it's bad news that makes the news. You know, that's the headline. It's always when things go wrong. And just to echo uh, your point that you said before, Emma, because I do believe in the weakest view of history that fundamentally it, it is about progress. Things do get better if you take a long enough view uh, and we shouldn't lose, lose sight of that. You know, there will always be setbacks and bends and kinks in the road and we need to be there to, to call them out as, as such. But we should never forget the fact that things are remorselessly actually getting better for, for most of us most of the time. Emma Burnell, how can people find you on social media? Well, as I say, I'm always on Twitter at Burnell underscore. Laura Babcock. Appropriate. It's in my bio. <laughs> Smashing. Uh, Laura Babcock, how can people catch up with you? 
Laura Babcock on Twitter, often talking to Emma, which I love. <laughs> also on Instagram, Laura Babcock, LinkedIn, Laura Babcock, Facebook, Laura Babcock. Yeah, yeah. anywhere, anywhere you see my name, talk to me. <laughs> uh, folks can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at SF Doug or subscribe to my almost daily COVID headlines at douglevy.substack.com, D-O-U-G-L-E-V-Y.substack.com. Uh, that's been us, uh, Mid-Atlantic. The Posse are back. All right. Thank you, everybody, for, for putting up with the fact that I'm putting out some other shows, uh, interviews with, with, with interesting people who kind of message me and says, hmm, would you like to talk to me? I'm like, okay, but let's talk to you. So I've been doing that. But this is the Posse. This is the quartet. This is the uh, dynamic duo times two. There you go. <laughs> Take care. Of- that's been us. Don't forget, folks, left of centre politics is right politics. Be good to each other. You know it all makes sense. That's us, Mid-Atlantic. We'll see you all in approximately 14 days' time for another barnstorming, rip-roaring episode where we'll put the world to rights and tell you where right of centre politicians are going wrong. Tiger poop. (laughs) Tiger poop. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.